0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We've sung in all of our songs today about the glory of Jesus Christ. And that is a perfect intro to our passage in God's Word today as we look at Mark chapter 9. Now last week we jumped back into the Gospel of Mark and we saw a distinct shift in focus. You'll recall from last year, this past year as we were looking at the first half of Mark, that the focus in those first eight chapters was on who Jesus was. But having heard Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the focus has now shifted to a second question, namely, as the Messiah, what has Jesus come to do? And last week we saw that he began to answer that question by declaring that he has come to suffer and to die. And not only that, but he's called his disciples to take up their cross and to suffer with him. this is very unexpected for the disciples. It went against their understanding of the Messiah and what he had come to do and what they thought Christ's arrival meant for them. It clearly threw them for a bit of a loop. But Jesus is wise and gracious. Jesus is the master discipler. And so today we see him pulling aside Peter, James, and John to encourage their hearts with a glimpse of glory. And so if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, we want to follow along together as we read Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. This is God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Father, I pray that you would use this text of your word to draw our hearts more to you. Give us a greater understanding of our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, knowing what's going to happen ahead of time can be either a blessing or a curse. A small example of this might be of experienced uh, by any of you who stream your sporting events. Because, see, if you, if you stream your sporting events, streaming services are delayed from real time. And so it might be happening that, that you're watching something and just at the most suspenseful moment of the game, a friend of you who's watching on live TV texts you about what just happened. But you haven't seen it happen yet. And so right at that moment of suspense... It's either a great blessing to know it's going to turn out in a touchdown or your team wins, or it's a great moment of resignation because no matter how good it looks, you know it's going to fail. Of course, that's just an anomaly of 21st century streaming technology, and it has incredibly limited significance since it has to do with a football game. But when it comes to real life and what's going to happen in history and in our lives, of course, we have no ability to know ahead of time what's going to happen. But God does, and he is perfectly wise in knowing what to reveal to his people in his word about what is going to happen in the future. And that's really at the heart of the purpose of this passage here in Mark 9, because as the confused disciples are wrestling with Jesus' statement about the Messiah's suffering, God encourages their hearts with a glimpse of Christ's coming glory even as he also reaffirms Jesus' teaching that suffering is the path to that glory. And so this morning I want to look at each of those. I want to look at the glimpse of Christ's coming glory, and then I want to look at suffering as the path to that glory. We'll start in verses 2 through 8, where God gives the disciples here a glimpse of Christ's glory. Mark tells us that six days had passed since the first conversation about the Messiah's suffering, and even that detail should cause us to stop and pay attention, because very rarely in any of the Gospels, and particularly in Mark, are any specific details about the number of days in the time given outside of the three days in the tomb in Jesus' resurrection. Mark says a lot of things like, and immediately this happened, or after some days they went about and did this. But here we have the specific detail of after six days. And for that to be true, it's clear that the event on the mountain here must have made a deep impression on the disciples for them to remember it with such clarity. And so any suggestion that uh, what is... Recorded here was just a hazy memory on a warm, sleepy afternoon, or maybe just one of those times when the sun kind of drops at the perfect angle and someone looks like they have a halo around their head or something like that, are completely insufficient to account for the unique detail with which this event is remembered. Mark, of course, you remember, is writing Peter's eyewitness testimony. And he writes that Jesus took these three disciples up on a mountain and while there, Jesus was transfigured before them. That is, he was changed in appearance before them. Clearly, words are not adequate to summarize exactly what happened here, but all three Gospels use words like light, whiteness, and brilliance to summarize the change that came over Jesus. Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun And his clothes became white as light. Luke says his face was changed in his appearance and his clothes became dazzling white. And Mark says that his clothes became radiant and intensely white like no dry cleaner or launderer could ever make them. Back in 1993, Tide released its Tide with Bleach as well as an ad campaign for it They showed a, a girl riding her bike with her white sweater on Through the mud puddle and splashing mud up on her sweater And her socks all brown with mud And then miraculously tied with bleach Restored their whiteness The commercial declared if it's got to be clean it's got to be tied But everyone knows what the sweater looks like originally And tied only restores the original whiteness of the cloth That's not what's happening here Jesus shone with an inherent dazzling brilliance that was unlike anything on earth. In fact, these words of brilliant, radiant, whiteness, they're only used of Jesus here and of the angels at the tomb. It's, it's, it's an appearance of a heavenly being. Of course, Jesus is not merely a heavenly being. He is, as Hebrews 1.3 puts it, the radiance of the glory of God. And in this moment... The Lord pulls back the veil to reveal Jesus in his true glory. Yes, that glory has been veiled for a time by Jesus' humanity, but this is the glory that is his, and it is his glory that will be revealed again and fully restored in the days to come. So the disciples get this in-person vision of the true glory of the Son of God. But they don't just see Jesus' glory the disciples also receive tangible proof that Jesus is the Messiah when Moses and Elijah show up to talk with him. Of course, Moses and Elijah are the two greatest representatives of the prophetic tradition that had been looking ahead and telling us that a Messiah was to come. Specifically, I think of of Malachi chapter 4. Remember that Malachi chapter 4 was the last chapter of God's word to his people before 400 years of silence and then the coming of Jesus. And right there in those last few verses of Malachi 4, God talks about the day of the Lord that would come. And in those last three verses, he draws attention to Moses and the law of God that was revealed through Moses and to Elijah who would show up before the day of the Lord. So when Moses and Elijah show up and speak with Jesus, it's another sign of the disciples that this is the Messiah the one these two had been pointing to, the one that the the last chapter of God's word had had drawn attention to as he prepared for the coming of the day of the Lord and God's Messiah. But not only did they see Jesus' glory, not only did they get a, a reminder that Jesus is the Messiah through Moses and Elijah, but they got also the very voice of God confirming who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Mark tells us that while they were there witnessing this conversation on the mountain, a cloud overshadowed them. Now maybe some of you are hikers and you've, you've hiked up a, a decent mountain before and if you've been up there, maybe you've had the experience of a low-flying cloud coming over you and, and enveloping you while you're there on the mountain. That's not what's happening here. The disciples are not surrounded by water vapor or moisture because this is the cloud the glory cloud of the presence of God. This is the cloud that Exodus 40 tells about, that it came down and rested on the tabernacle. It's the cloud 1 Kings 8 talks about when the ark of the Lord is first brought into the temple. And we read, "...the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord." And when Peter, James, and John are surrounded by the cloud, we read in both Matthew and Luke that it was that moment when the cloud surrounded them that they were struck with fear in the presence of the Lord. And then the very voice of God speaks to them saying, this is my beloved son. It affirms who Jesus is. But then it says, listen to him. Listen to the words that he says. Now, I can only imagine what it must have been like for three everyday fishermen of Israel to suddenly come face to face with Moses and Elijah. These are the greatest men in the history of our our people. And then to sit in the presence of God and hear his voice speak to you. Naturally, they had no idea how to respond. James and John, these you know, bold sons of thunder, are struck silent in amazement. And, and Peter, who just naturally starts talking when he doesn't know what to do, starts suggesting a camp out and getting some tents for all of them to, to be there together. But the text says they were afraid and they didn't know what to say. But even in their fear, what a, what a gracious gift God has given these three in this moment. See, they had just had all their expectations rocked. They had had their thinking turned topsy-turvy when the Messiah told them he was going to suffer and die. And they're thinking, well, what does that mean for the redemption of Israel? What does that mean for the promises of glory that God said would come through his Messiah? How is that going to happen if the Messiah is going to die? And in the face of those questions, God assures their heart that all that is still true. He assures them of the glory that is still coming by giving them a real in-person glimpse of Jesus' glory, by confirming Jesus' identity through Moses and Elijah and giving them a final verification of who Jesus was and the truth of his words by the very voice of God. What an encouragement this must have been to the disciples in that moment. Of course, it should be an encouragement to us too. Maybe we ask questions like this sometimes. Maybe we look around us and say, Well, will God really come again in glory? How can I be sure? And if that's true, why is it taking so long? And if that's true, what about all the suffering and the, the difficulty of what I'm going through? And what about all the, the temptation that I'm surrounded by when I think of the muck and the mire of this world or the lure and attraction of the world? And God seems so distant. How do I know? That God's promises are true. And I love what J.C. Ryle puts when he's writing about this chapter. He says, We too have reason to thank God for this vision. Let us see in the story of the transfiguration a remedy for doubting thoughts about God and a remedy for temptations to give up Christ's service. Because the vision of the Holy Mount is a gracious pledge that glorious things are in store for the people of God. Their crucified Savior shall come again in power and great glory, and this moment reassures us of that. And his saints shall all come with him and are in safe keeping until that happy day. For as God says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a great assurance for us. But maybe there's some of you here who say, well, that's all well and good to say that this is an assurance, but, but I didn't experience this. Oh, great for Peter, James, and John. They got surrounded by the glory cloud. They, they saw the vision and the dazzling white, but I haven't experienced that. For me, my experience is the long, hard, everyday normalcy of life. My experience is feeling like God is, is somewhat distant from me. Maybe if I'd been there on the mountaintop, I could be assured, but, but how can I be assured when I haven't seen what Peter has seen? If that's what your thoughts are thinking right now, can I just draw your attention to how Peter himself reflected on this event? See, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter talks about what happens here on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says that he did not follow cleverly devised myths, when he made known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty, and he himself heard the voice of majestic glory on the mountain. In other words, Peter says, look, I didn't make this up. This isn't something the apostles just came up with us. I saw it with my own eyes, and I can assure you, Christ will come in glory. But then, after saying that, Peter adds another comment which is so important for us because I think he recognizes that anyone's personal experience can be doubted and misinterpreted or misrepresented. Personal experience is not the greatest assurance of truth. And so Peter goes on in 2 Peter 1 to say that we have a more sure or more firm reason to believe Jesus' coming power and glory, namely the prophetic word of God. For, Peter says, God's word comes directly from men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter is saying here that if you and I had been on the Mount of Transfiguration with them, seeing that moment would still not be as good of a reason or as as an assuring weight of proof That Jesus Christ is coming again in power and glory as God's own promises given to us in his word. So believer, be encouraged. God has given us many reasons to trust him. He's given us the personal testimony of those who were there. He's given us this glimpse of Jesus' glory through his word and then he has given us his promises spoken by the Holy Spirit. All that we might be assured that Jesus is the Christ and he will come again in power and glory to save anyone who has put their faith in him. And that is God's graciously confirmed promise. Well, this is the glimpse of Jesus' glory, but I want to move on now to see secondly that Jesus affirms that suffering is the path to this glory. The affirmation that suffering is his path to glory begins with Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah. It sure would be wonderful to know what they said, wouldn't it? What what did Peter hear? What did Moses and Elijah talk about with Jesus? And Mark doesn't give us any details, but Luke does tell us the subject of their conversation. And Luke, in his gospel, tells us that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were talking about Jesus' departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In other words, in the very moment, revealing Jesus' glory and identity in the Messiah, the discussion between the prophets and Jesus was about his death that was coming. What an affirmation that yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but yes, suffering is what he is called to go through. And of course, if that weren't enough, God's own voice says, Jesus is my beloved son. He confirms his identity, but then says, and listen to him. And what are they supposed to listen to? Well, everything he has said, of course, including Jesus' words that he is about to suffer and to die. And of course, if that weren't enough, as Jesus and his disciples are walking down the mountain, you see it there in verse 9, Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had risen from the dead, which only implies again that he is about to die. And so again and again in this passage, God is patiently but clearly revealing that yes, Jesus is the Messiah. That is who he is. He will come in power and great glory to restore God's kingdom, but the path to that glory lies through suffering and death. Now, I think it's with a little bit of irony, maybe. Perhaps this is just my imagining, but Mark tells us that the disciples uh, were told not to tell anyone until after Jesus had risen from the dead, what had happened here. And it says, so they kept the matter to themselves. But we're clearly told that they didn't know what he was talking about. What is this resurrection from the dead? And not only that, but can you imagine Peter and James and John coming down as these three fishermen and saying, well, guys, uh, this afternoon we met with Moses and Elijah and uh, also heard the voice of God himself. And the main takeaway is the Messiah is going to die. Well, who would believe that? So it says that they kept these things to themselves, not sure what they meant. But thinking about the resurrection in the last day does spark a question in their minds. They say to Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, I confess I'm not 100% sure what the connection is between Jesus' statement and their question. Perhaps they feel that Jesus' statement about the resurrection seems so imminent that it applies that Elijah's not coming. Or maybe they want to suggest, Jesus, why do you need to die if Elijah's going to restore all things? Those seem to be at odds with one another. I'm not sure exactly what the connection is, but clearly they ask Jesus about Elijah and whether he is indeed coming to restore all things. And Jesus' response must have surprised them again, although they should be used to that by now. Jesus declares, yes, Elijah does come first, just as Malachi 4 5 had foretold But, says Jesus, Elijah has already come. That has been fulfilled. And the scribes did to Elijah whatever they pleased, just as it had been written of him. Now, Matthew in his gospel tells us that when Jesus said this, they realized that he was speaking of John the Baptist. In other words, the scribes were quite right that Elijah was going to come, but they were wrong because it was not Elijah himself risen from the dead, but the one in the spirit and the power of Elijah who was going to come. And the scribes were also wrong because he wasn't going to come in glory and honor. He would be persecuted and would suffer just as the first Elijah did. But while the disciples are thinking about God's prophecies in the Old Testament, Jesus puts a follow up question to them. And isn't Jesus so good about this? People ask him a question, he gives an answer and immediately asks a follow up question of them. And he says to them, But how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? If the restoration of all things is at hand and Elijah has come, Jesus is saying there's something else, Scripture says, has to happen before all things are restored and that something else is a righteous, suffering servant that the Son of Man would suffer. We talked last week about Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12 that are likely in Jesus' mind here. In other words, Jesus is saying, disciples, you're thinking in all the right ways. You're thinking about the Old Testament and what it says should happen, but, but you're forgetting that suffering of the Messiah is one of the things the Old Testament talked about. And so we come right back to Jesus confirming statements that suffering is his path to glory. Now it sure seems like Jesus has given ample evidence to prove his point here, but the disciples are no closer to understanding what Jesus means. And we'll continue to see them giving those glances and shrugs. We don't know what he's talking about here. Even when Jesus does die, we'll see the disciples grieved and locked in an upper room, even though these are the things Jesus had told them would happen. But this passage is another piece in the puzzle, as God faithfully reveals his plan of salvation and gives his people reason to trust him and to believe him when everything happens just as he says. Well, we come to the end of this passage this morning, but I want to end by asking, well, how, how does all of this apply to us? On a Sunday morning in January, what does this mean for us? And I want to mention three things. First, if we're tracking with all that Jesus has said here, the implications for us are pretty clear. Elijah came and he suffered. Jesus came and he suffered. And so those who bear the name of Jesus should expect to suffer as well. This, of course, is nothing less than the consistent message of every epistle in the New Testament, that if we come and give ourselves to Christ, we should expect to die to ourselves, to die to sin, that we might live to righteousness, to die to ourselves, that we might belong wholeheartedly in body and soul to Jesus Christ and whatever he calls us to. We're to die in suffering, that we might be perfected in holiness. That's the deal. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. But of course, Christ's call is not suffering for suffering's sake. Just like for Christ, our call is to suffering on our way to glory. Paul puts it in Philippians 3, verse 10, this way, he says, I'm very willing to share Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You know, the gospel could never be accused of stacking up hidden fees. You know, your cell phone bill or your cable bill, and there's the base price, and you sign up thinking that's what you're going to pay, and it ends up costing you a huge percentage more because of all the hidden fees. Well, the gospel is not like that. Jesus is clear right up front that following Christ means death to ourselves. It means death to sin death to the things we want for ourselves against God's will, death to the world, and often in suffering and rejection. But the gospel also cannot be accused of overselling the benefits. You know those commercials which promise how amazing this product is going to be, and it's not even a third as amazing as they say. The gospel can't be accused of that either, because the reward is real. Fellowship in glory with our Savior. And this passage orients our expectations yet again, both to death and suffering now, but also to the glory that is to come if we have put our faith in our Savior. So that's the first thing this passage draws our attention to. Second thing is this. This passage highlights the patience of God to reveal himself to somewhat dull and slow people like Peter and James and John and you and me. You know we read all of the attempts that Jesus makes to teach the truth of the Messiah's death and resurrection and we think boy how many times does he have to tell these guys these guys are total brickheads but remember this takes place over several years and I'm confident that if you were to boil down several years of my life and your life into all of the things we fail to grasp or all of the times we repeat the same confusion or the same sin or the same anxiety, or we think the same false hope that this world's going to satisfy us again, there's more than enough fodder to confirm every one of us is total brickheads. In fact, what it makes clear is that none of us is able to get the truth of the gospel on our own. We can't discover it, figure it out, grasp it in our own power, We must have God reveal it to us. He must open our minds and our hearts if we're going to understand it and come to Him. But look at the God that this passage reveals, a God who persistently and patiently reveals truth, asks questions, points out inconsistencies, faithfully and patiently and mercifully, showing His disciples who He is, that they might know Him more and more, that they might be His own. And that is the God who comes to us as well, to reveal his truth to us, to patiently, mercifully, and faithfully teach us of who he is and draw us to himself. I want us to realize the character of God is the second thing this passage shows us. But finally, this passage offers us one of the closest juxtapositions of Christ's glory and Christ's suffering. Now, I'm not much of an artist, and I don't know much about color. But I still like going to Sherwin-Williams or Lowe's and pulling all those paint chips out and comparing colors and seeing how they go with And of course, if you've done that, you know how many times you can go and think, oh, this one's white. And then you find the actual white and the one you thought was white looks completely yellow. But holding two things up to each other doesn't just reveal the true white. It also makes opposites stand out in the starkest way midnight navy might blend really well with a gray, but every ounce of the midnight darkness stands out when it's held right up against the bright, brilliant white. And in a similar way, we can know the precious truth of Christ suffering for us. But that truth stands out all the more in sharper relief when we see this dazzling vision of Christ in all of his glory, saying this glorious one, the one transfigured, this is the one who became a man to suffer and die for us. This is the one who dimmed the radiant splendor of his person with the specific intent to go to the cross for you and me who were lost and enslaved in our sin and ourselves. And our only hope was an infinite righteous sacrifice offered in our place. That's who Christ was and that's who stands out this morning. So this is my challenge as we end. Do not let familiarity dull the glory of the Christ who died for you and me. And do not allow another hearing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, go by without repenting of sin and trusting in Christ as your Savior. And do not let the routine of the passing days diminish our confident expectation of the glory that is coming. For Jesus has given us assurance here in his word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this vision of glory, of who you are, and of what is going to be revealed in the days to come. Now I pray, Father, that we would marvel at who you are, that we would be amazed again that you would go to the cross for us. May it remind us of how desperate our need was, how much we needed our sin covered by the perfect sacrifice. How much we need you to reveal that truth to us and call our hearts to trust in such a Savior. And Father, as we do, may we be ready, even eager, to die to ourselves, to give up what we want in our way of life and what we think we need to live for you. May it make us all the more ready and eager to live in suffering now, because we anticipate the glorious hope we have in Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.